There's more mischief, mayhem, and nefarious goings-on in the city of brotherly love than Billy Penn could have ever imagined. We've got it all here on the Twisted Billy Podcast. True crime, haunted history, the coolest and creepiest places to visit. Welcome, Welcome to, to Twisted, Twisted Billy. Billy. Welcome back to another episode of Twisted Philly. I'm your host, Dina Marie. If you follow podcasts we listen to on Facebook, then you might be able to guess who is joining me on this episode. A few months ago, I was interviewed on Jeremy Collins' podcast, Podcast We Listen To, which is named after the Facebook community. Jeremy goes behind the mic with some of my favorite hosts and digs into how hosts create their shows. They talk about episodes and content. He asks some very interesting personal questions. In our episode, we talked about so many Philly topics, and then we talked about action figures and Girl Scouts, my kid. I had such a great time on Jeremy's show. We actually joked that maybe he should do an episode with me sometime, and we could call it Twisted Nola, because Jeremy's hometown is New Orleans, Louisiana, and there are a lot of scary stories coming out of that spot. Well, that's what we're going to be doing today. So, I'd like to welcome Jeremy Collins to Twisted Philly. Hi, Dina. Hi, Jeremy. How are you tonight? I'm doing wonderfully. How are you? I'm doing great. So I want to tell the listeners the evolution of how we got together to do this haunted Twisted Nola episode. When Jeremy and I recorded on his show, we discovered that we both love ghost stories. Considering that Nola is one of the most haunted cities in the country, I figured Jeremy would have some great ghost stories to share. So that's what we're going to do. We're each going to share a few ghost stories from our hometown, and I thought maybe the listeners could decide which ones are scarier, which ones they think are truly haunted, not just legend versus rumor, and then maybe we can do a little poll afterwards and see who wins. Oh, I see. It's a competition then. (laughs) Maybe. Well, you didn't tell me all that. Yeah, no, I didn't tell you that until after you got on the mic. Fucking sneaky bitch. I am a sneaky bitch. (laughs) (laughs) But we each have stories that are similar locales, so I think it's good for ghostly comparisons. Since you are a guest, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm going to talk about Lafitte's Blacksmith Bar to start off with. So Lafitte's, have you been to Lafitte's? It has been a very long time, but yes, I have been to Lafitte's. Well, it's considered the oldest bar in the U.S. I know that you would argue that, but (laughs) it is. So I've got you beat there already. Yeah, you do. I like to think that Philadelphia has some of the oldest bars in the country, but we don't. It's definitely (laughs) the oldest building being used as a bar in the U.S. It was built sometime between 1722 and 1723, that area. And the building survived (laughs) two great fires in New Orleans. The fire of 1788. And that destroyed over 800 of the 1,100 buildings in the city along Vucre to Charter Street. Oh, my God. And I have to tell you, if people look this up, they're going to think I'm crazy because it's spelled C-H-A-R-T-R-E-S. 
and people say Chartres and all this stuff. But if you're from the city, if you're from New Orleans, we call it Charters. But it went almost as far as the Mississippi River. It also survived the fire of 1794, which went from Burgundy to Charter Street. So it's not a real cool place to be hanging out during that six-year period. So there were two major fires in such a short period of time. In the same small little area. That's crazy because when I think of New Orleans, I think of how old everything is. Clearly, there's a lot of stuff that had to have been rebuilt at some point in the 1800s, I guess. Well, clearly, it was old enough to be before good fire standards. That fire destroyed over 200 buildings just in the quarter alone. In 1772, Jean Lafitte used the building as a blacksmith shop, which was a front for the smuggling business that he ran with his brother Pierre. Now, Jean and Pierre worked with pirates, also known as privateers, who would steal goods from ships and smuggle them into New Orleans and fence them out of Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop. So that was like an early French Quarter mob using the blacksmith shop to hide all of their dirty dealings? I would say very Goodfellas-ish. The way the privateers avoided paying taxes and the Lafitte brothers made money off the sale of those smuggled goods was by fencing it through that shop. In 1806, or right around there, the French passed a law banning trade with the U.S. and Great Britain. And with the U.S. Embargo Act in 1807, American ships were banned from docking in foreign ports. So did that put like a huge damper on their fencing operation? It caused some issues with Jean Lafitte's business. Uh, you know, I mean, less foreign ships in the ports of New Orleans and less American ships bringing goods back from foreign lands kind of made it a little bit more difficult. So the brothers left the blacksmith shop on the corner of Bourbon and St. Philippe, an open shop on an island in Barataria Bay just off the coast of New Orleans. But they were eventually caught and their smuggling operation was shut down and they were arrested. Now, <laughs> on a side note, Barataria is the name of the fictional island given to Sancho Paza to govern as a prank in part two of Don Quixote. Oh my God, I didn't realize it was a real place. Well, the bay is a real place, but knowing how old Don Quixote is, I would have to say they named the bay after that fictional island. That's kind of cool. As smugglers, they often heard the best rumors, and Jean Lafitte warned the government about a planned attack from the British in an effort to steal back the Louisiana Purchase. In exchange for the warnings, Jean wanted freedom for him and his brother, but it wasn't just given to him. Both the Lafittes were made to fight in the Battle of New Orleans in 1814. So they got out of jail, but they had to join the army. Basically. That's kind of a shitty deal. Well, it's one of those things you hear about <laughs> in movies. And, you know, you think it's just the 1960s. Well, you can go to jail or you can join the army. But I guess it goes back a little bit further than that. After serving in the military, they were both, well, they both went back to smuggling because they're <laughs> a bunch of scandalous bastards. <laughs> but they moved their operation to the Gulf of Mexico and started targeting Spanish ships. Despite all this, it's the bar in the blacksmith shop where they had first set up their smuggling operations back in the 1700s where Lafitte's ghost hangs out. Now, Lafitte's blacksmith bar is rumored to be haunted by the ghost of Jean Lafitte himself. I've never seen it. I have been there, and it's a cool place because it looks like it's about to fall down. 
Yeah, it doesn't look like much of the buildings that you see in the French Quarter. Like, I think it really follows that original sort of French colonial. It looks like very simple, like a mini version of a of a simple chateau you might find in the wine country of France. It doesn't have all the gingerbread and all of the ra- beautiful wrought iron. It's very simple. Yeah, it's much more basic. You know, the French Quarter, the architecture is one of the things that I love about the French Quarter. There's the free spirit of the place where you just feel like you can do anything. You can walk down the street with a mixed drink or a beer and nobody says anything to you. I've been in Mardi Gras and seen a carload of cops pull up, two get out of the front, they let two out of the back, they pop the trunk, they each grab a Sprite, pour out half of it, fill the rest with vodka, and then look at me. No, they don't. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and, you know, they looked over at me and I'm like, what, what, you know, just kind of turn around and walk away because I'm not going to mess with those dudes. The architecture in the French Quarter is so ornate and just so beautiful. And then there's Jean Lafitte's blacksmith shop where it looks like it's stones put on top of stones with mortar in between. And it's got just this lane to it, like yeah, one it sure wrong does. move and it's going to fall and kill everybody inside of it. <laughs> The fountain in Jean Lafitte's courtyard is two people getting it on (laughs) in a not very subtle way. It's a little indelicate. (laughs) There is nothing delicate about it whatsoever. (laughs) I haven't been there in so long I forgot about the fountain. So you said you've never seen his ghost there, but there are reports of, of it being haunted specifically by Jean Lafitte. Yeah, some people say that they've seen his face uh, kind of peering out of the grates in the large stone fireplace in the center of the room. Others have seen him sitting in the back of the piano bar with a drink in his hand. And there's even a few patrons who claim they felt their his hands on their shoulders. <laughs> yeah, I just got the goosebumps. <laughs> Or they've felt an invisible force try to take a drink from their hands. And people believe it's the ghost of Jean Lafitte trying to get another cocktail. So it's only Jean Lafitte. It's not his brother. Nobody cares about Pierre. Nobody cares about Pierre. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Pierre. He's like Peter Brady versus Greg Brady, I guess. I think he's like Pepe Le Pew trying to get the love. And everybody's like that little female skunk that's like, no, get away from me. (laughs) but there's also reports of a female apparition who appears in the mirror on the second floor of the bar and nobody seems to know who that is i can't say i now granted it's been a very long time since i've gone to the feats but i can't say i ever had any experiences there i think i'd be okay if i saw something i would probably freak the fuck out if i felt somebody touch me and there wasn't an actual human being there. I think that would be really freaky. I have, not in Jean Lafitte's, but I have had that experience before. Have I never told you about that? No, I don't think you have told me about that. Are you comfortable sharing that? Well, it's not a major thing. It scared the bejesus out of me. But I was working in New Orleans at the time, and I felt fingers go across my back. And I heard or felt, maybe. No, I heard it. I heard it like you're talking to me right now. But I heard Jeremy as the fingers went across my back. And I looked around and the nearest person was maybe 15, 20 feet away. 
where were you working? Were you working in a place that was supposed to be haunted or? No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, it was actually, okay, so I was 19, I guess, and working at a grocery store. And I was just doing my thing. And it was a recently built grocery store. I mean, it only been there for a couple of years. So to my knowledge, no. And before that, it had been woods. But who knows what went down in the woods? I mean, you know, with the Pine Barrens there, that it could yeah. be anything. <laughs> There's all kinds of bodies buried in the Jersey Pine Barrens. Maybe we'll have to take some people to Lafitte's if we have time during Potter and Love. I think that sounds like a great place for a meetup when we're all in New Orleans in August next year. But I'm telling you right now, if he tries to steal my drink, I'm going to throat punch him. Why does that not surprise me? <laughs> it's my thing. It's my thing. You're so wow. violent. Oh, I don't mean for it to be violent. It's it's just it's just a phrase. It's a figure of speech. I know I'm going to say people say it in Philly, but then the next thing you know, somebody will be like, nobody in Philly says it, only you. So I don't know. Maybe it's a Dina Marie thing, but I like to say throat punch. <laughs> so it's not a violent thing. Well, I mean, it could be if I actually did it. Because that's one of the things I like about you. Oh, well, that's good. all right so you have a story of a haunted bar i too have a story of a haunted bar i must concede this one to jeremy because lafitte's is significantly older than what i'm going to talk about um you know you're all excited now because you won round (laughs) one i'm excited Now, some people might think I'm going to talk about McMillan's Tavern again. I'm not. It isn't the oldest bar in the city. It is the longest operating bar in the city of Philadelphia. But what I want to talk about is City Tavern, which opened in 1773. So 50 years after Lafitte's opened, clearly you win that one. Oh, yeah. It opened just a few years before the country won our independence from Great Britain. So, you know, you don't have that accomplishment on which to hang a hat. You guys have some very cool history in Philly. Our history is filled with scoundrels and dirtbags. Oh, we've got our fair share of scoundrels and dirtbags, too. They just dressed better and pretended like they were high society. I see. They still do, from what I understand. Yeah. Yeah, they do. When City Tavern was built, it was a place that was envisioned as a meeting place for Philadelphia's prominent legislators and the men who would eventually become the founding fathers of our independence. So if you were a fly on the wall at City Tavern in the mid to late 1770s, you would see men like George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, so many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. At the time, City Tavern was considered really the finest tavern in all of the early colonies, It was so much more than a meeting house. It was a place where people could go for concerts. There were balls held at the tavern. There were men transacting business under the table while the ale was flowing. So, you know, when you talk about scoundrels, we had our fair share as well. I think something that was really cool is George Washington held a huge party at City Tavern with hundreds of Philadelphia's high society back in 1789, right before his actual presidential inauguration in New York. There's just so much rich history. And the food at City Tavern was renowned. In the late 1700s, Philadelphia was really a chef's paradise, which you, having been a chef yourself, might be something you would very much enjoy. Because we were a port city right along the Delaware River, there was rum and spices and fresh fruit 
so easily accessible through the seaports. Philly for so long was just this very small city and it was surrounded by dense forests where there were game and mushrooms and so much fresh produce. So City Tavern was like the place to be and to be seen. And it was really for the elite of people in early government in you know the early days of America. The tavern was often used as a place for historical events and celebrations in Philadelphia for close to 60 years until 1834 when it was destroyed. Would you like to guess how City Tavern was destroyed? Was it a fire? It was a fire! <laughs> Which it isn't funny. We shouldn't be laughing about fires. It's pretty common, though. Right? I think it's crazy. Both our stories, yours survived the fire, mine was demolished by the fire. And then in 1854, just 20 years later, it was razed to the ground and City Tavern was no more. So this place that was such a huge part of not just Philadelphia history, but early American history was eradicated off the face of the map. But at least it took 20 years. I mean, we had the two great fires that destroyed half the French Quarter. Oh, that's true. Six years. Yeah, that's insane. That sounds like arson. Oh, well, I mean, come on. We were already established that we're full of scoundrels and dirtbags, so (laughs) it's very possible. Well, the good thing was about 100 years later, an organization called the Independence National Historic Park embarked on a large-scale project to preserve buildings and sites that were of great historical significance to the city of Philadelphia. Even though City Tavern was basically like a slab, the site where the tavern once stood was one of the locations that the organization decided to preserve. And in 1975, City Tavern was reopened and it looked almost identical to the original tavern that had opened 200 years before. The city used period photographs, they used historical accounts from journals and papers that were written in the late 1700s and early 1800s. They used old insurance surveys. So if you were to walk into City Tavern today, it's pretty much an exact replica of what it was when it opened in the 1770s. I'm going to give Philadelphia this. You guys have a respect for the history and this type of thing. When something goes down, you restore it. In we tried to. Well, in New Orleans, all those buildings look that way because they're that goddamn old. They are the original buildings or were rebuilt in that same time period. But now if something goes down, they don't rebuild it that way. They put well, something new up instead. Yeah, I will say there is a tremendous impact in the city from the National Historic Registry and historical societies. I mean, even private residents who have, you know, Trinity Row houses that are hundreds of years old and different parts of the city, they're, you know, under an obligation when they do any kind of restoration or remodeling to adhere to certain architectural guidelines, certain color scheme guidelines. It actually can become quite cost prohibitive. But it ensures the historical commitment in the city. You know, City Tavern is a place that people think of when they think about historic pubs and watering holes. And some people think it's the oldest pub in the city. But the building is really only about 40 years old. The land it sits on, certainly hundreds of years old. But this building isn't very old at all. So when I say I concede to Jeremy as far as the oldest bar in the country, yes, I may not concede on the ghosts, though. Well, I will concede that you're a much better goddamn storyteller than I am. Because I'm sitting here listening to you, feeling like I'm listening to an episode 
And you describe things much better than I do. And Shut up. just sound so much better. Oh, stop it. That's very sweet. I'll probably edit that out. You um, better not. All right, I won't. You're the guest. I just, you know, everybody knows I go crazy over Philadelphia history. Well, there's and- a reason I interview people and you tell stories. <laughs> <laughs> Move on with your story. Oh, whatever. Well, if you ever come to Philly... You'll have to decide for yourself if you visit City Tavern whether or not it feels like you have truly stepped back in time. The crazy thing about City Tavern is that the friggin' Department of the Interior, like I'm talking the government, regulates the menu, the decor, everything about the tavern. All of the recipes have to follow early colonial recipes. They make everything from scratch, following the traditions of our ancestors. And if you go on the website to get more information about it, they call it an interpretive experience because the servers and the staff are dressed in period costume. It's actually part of Philadelphia's Independence National Park. That's really what includes all the recognized historical monuments all over the city of Philadelphia. But that's got to give it a really incredible taste because... Anybody who has done cooking or chefing or whatever you want to call it will tell you as much of a pain in the ass as it is to do everything from scratch like that. The end result is so much better. The food is really phenomenal. And, you know, there's things you wouldn't expect to find like pheasant pie and oh my god it's just it's crazy. It, it's so good. You know, the chef and proprietor has been there for 20 years. It's a really remarkable dining experience. And I'm such a history nerd that I love sitting there looking at people in their colonial costumes. I actually really want to go there dressed in costume, but I feel like I would look like such an asshole if I did that. So I've I've never done that, even though I want to. Everything feels like it's hundreds of years old, but it isn't. It's 40 years old. And that's why I find it so surprising that City Tavern is haunted. Now, I believe it's haunted. I do. There are so many reports from staff and patrons that I believe there has to be something going on there. But it's not like there were deaths other than the fire in 1834 where spirits would linger. I think what happened is I think the ground there, this is just my own personal strange opinion. I think the ground there holds the essence of what happened and that the spirits of the men and women who patronized City Tavern, it's so famous among early American historic locations, and and maybe that's what kept their spirits there. One of the ghosts of City Tavern is actually a young bride who was killed in the fire that destroyed the tavern in 1834. So what happened was she and the ladies in her bridal party were up on the second floor. They were finishing their preparations, you know, primping and getting their dresses together. All of the gentlemen were downstairs on the lower floors and a candle flame ignited the curtains in the room where she and her bridesmaids were preparing for the wedding. It destroyed the room. It spread so quickly they weren't able to get out. And ultimately, it's what destroyed the building. So one of the most common apparitions is this young bride and members of her bridal party that died in that fire. Her ghost is most often seen on the second floor in the windows of what would have been the room where she and her bridal party were burned alive. So City Tavern is an incredibly popular place for weddings in the city of Philadelphia, as you can imagine, being such a historic, beautiful spot. 
there are young couples that have reported once they get the photographs back from their reception, they see strange images in the wedding photographs. They see the image of a young woman in a period wedding gown who wasn't in the room when the photo was taken. I know there Guess- are people that would get upset with that, but I think that would be the coolest goddamn thing ever. I think it would too. And, you know, I almost wonder if she visits the bridal parties of modern day bride and grooms because she didn't get to have that. You know, she died in the fire before her wedding took place. Maybe it's an opportunity for her to watch something that she herself didn't get to experience. Could be a very good possibility. You know that I believe in ghosts. Like I know you do. I do too. That's why we're doing the show. <laughs> I'm just saying, they have a reason for being there. They're not just there for no reason. They do. And, and certainly, you know, all the reports that I read online. Now, I've been to City Tavern. I've never personally seen this young bride. Other guests, staff at City Tavern have also reported seeing her walking the halls of the second floor. Again, it seems like she confines herself to the space where she died in the fire. Besides the ghost bride, there are also reports of a young man. He was a former waiter and he was killed in the bar room at the tavern. Now, this was before it burned down. He was dueling with someone. He lost his life. Not only staff, but also the head chef and proprietor, Walter Stabe, who operates City Tavern for over 20 years, he claims that table settings are moved, they're relocated, and he blames it on the spirit of this young waiter. There are also pictures online that some local Philadelphia residents have captured of orbs in front of City Tavern. Jeremy, what do you think about orbs? (laughs) it's funny you should ask because I was just thinking I don't really feel like the orbs are a thing I mean I know that you hear about it all the time but there's so many different things it could be I mean it could be fireflies it could be dust motes caught on film I just the orbs just don't jive with me as being the real deal it could be a reflection of a flash against metal or against glass when you think you're not going to get a reflection It could be any number of things. I've had some orb experiences myself in my own house. So I actually do believe in orbs in some circumstances. Do you want to tell me about that personal experience or do you (laughs) want to keep that? uh... You know, I can't remember if I've told it on the show before, but ah, fuck it. The listeners will forgive me if I have. So it was shortly after my daughter was born and she had a very she had a very traumatic (laughs) Why I think are you your laughing? listeners would forgive you for anything. Oh, I hope so. So she had a pretty traumatic birth, and it was probably within about a month, two months maybe after she was born. She would sit in her car seat on this great chair. It's like a half a love seat. And, of course, I would prop all kinds of pillows up around because I didn't want anything, didn't want her to fall. And she was always waving one arm in the air like she was touching something. A friend of mine who was over one night, he said, go get your camera and just start taking pictures. Don't take pictures of her. Just take pictures of that part of the room so that you're getting her in it, but you're getting the wall, the ceiling, just the space around her. I was like, all right. So I did it. And um, and this was, you know, I this was before digital cameras, although I think digital cameras were available 17 years ago. I just didn't have one. I got the film developed. And when the pictures came back, every single one of them had a white ball of light above where her hand was. That's pretty awesome. I think 
She wasn't playing with dust motes. <laughs> Fuck you. She wasn't playing with dust motes. Dust motes aren't that big. This, this thing this was like the really size. No, this was like the size of a, like maybe a large Super Bowl. It wasn't as big as a tennis ball, but it looked like it was the size of a Super Bowl. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you can just tell me to fuck off. I'm not going to tell you to fuck off. You're my guest. I can't do that. Okay, so that's pretty good. But now I have to talk about hospitals. So it would seem the other haunted locale that we have in common between NOLA and Philly are hospitals. Jeremy, would you like to start us off again? Well, my hospital is called Charity Hospital. Um, It was founded... In 1736, by a grant from Jean-Louis. Now, he was a French sailor and a shipbuilder who died the year before in New Orleans. And his last will and testament was to finance a hospital for the indigent in the colony of New Orleans from the funds that were left over from his estate. It was originally the Hospital of St. John and was located between charters and Bienville in what is now the French Quarter. Back in the yellow fever epidemic of 1858, 2,727 patients were admitted. 1,382 of them died from the disease. Oh my God, 50% of the people died. Pretty good track record, wouldn't you say? It was notoriously underfunded, even to present day. A big part of that's because it was a hospital for the indigent and the quote-unquote less desirable. You know, it wasn't a place for the affluent and the well-to-do people. It was a place for the people that society didn't care as much about. In any historical record of this hospital, and if you live in New Orleans, it's not a place you wanted to go for your medical health. You know, if you got into a car accident, and I know people this happened to, and they woke up in charity because it was the nearest hospital, the second they were able to, they got the fuck out of there because they just weren't going to receive the right kind of medical care. Is charity hospital still open? Like, is it still operating in New Orleans? No. No, it closed because when Katrina hit, it flooded. I mean, this is a 20-story hospital, but the lower parts of it were completely underwater. It became really bad. I mean, it was bad to begin with, but even now there's specimen bottles that still have stuff in them. Oh, God. Like, you can go online and you'll see pictures of these carts that say, place specimens for the morgue here, Mm. and they've still got the stuff. There's even rumors of body parts still being in random places, much like when it was open, in my opinion. It was the second oldest hospital in the U.S. until it was shut down. And it's huge. It's got over a million square feet. It had a, when it shut down, it had a 2,680 bed capacity. Wow. And when it closed down after Katrina hit, University Hospital, that's right across the way, absorbed all of their patients. 
they talked about rebuilding it, but the Louisiana legislature looked into it and hired a world-renowned architectural firm, and then they decided that it just wasn't cost-effective. So Charity Hospital is a super freaky-looking place. It looks like something right out of a horror film. I mean, imagine this 20-story building. It's abandoned, and they just left everything like you see in the horror films. You know, there's carts, and there's wheelchairs, and doors hanging off hinges. And because it's New Orleans, and it's so humid, and it rains, there's like ivy creeping up the side of it. It's freaky like it. I There's no way that I would go in that place without some kind of a, a team with me. And even then, I don't know how long I would last. But onto it being haunted, people have reported all sorts of strange stuff there. I mean, there's apparitions in period garb, there's doctors and nurses attending patients, and then they find out there wasn't a doctor or nurse in that ward at that time. There's weird, misty, like the apparitions that walk the stairs. There's even a report of a little girl wandering the halls, looking for her mom, but nobody knows who she is. And when they tried to find her, nobody could track her down. In December of 2015, 10 years after it shut down because of Katrina, a tiny Christmas tree was spotted, lit up in what appears to be, from the pictures I've seen, like the 15th or 17th floor. Picture this dark building. It's at night. The building's freaky looking as fuck. And then in this one lone window, way up high, there's a little tiny Christmas tree that lit up one night. Okay, all the hair is just standing up on my arms right now. (laughs) Now, well, to me, a lot of this stuff from charity seems like kind of the common ghost story stuff. But like I said, there's no way I would set foot in there without some sort of a team or you know, being on that ghost hunters show or something like that. Cause if it were me and you or me and you and Mike Brown, I might go in there, but there's no fucking way I'm going in there by myself. I would no. totally go with you. I would totally go with you and Mike Brown and, and maybe Diane too, from history goes bump. Although I know Denise won't go cause she doesn't like the scary stuff. I, I got to ask you about that Christmas tree. Do people think it's like an apparition of a tree? Do they think there's any way somebody could have gone in the building and set one up? I mean, it sounds like the buildings, you can't really get into it based on the conditions that it's in. Well, here's the thing about the Christmas tree. You can see pictures of it online, and it looks freaky deaky. I mean, like I said, it's way up there. It's like two or three floors from the top of this hospital and it's in the middle of a wing when i saw it i was like "Ah, creepy but because of the reports of it it went all it went viral on the internet they did go and explore and it was a hoax you suck (laughs) i'm standing here so freaked out over the story (laughs) of an apparition christmas tree and i'm thinking 
It has to be a ghost tree because there's no electricity in the building, right? If it was flooded from Katrina and abandoned, how could they get it to light up? And now you tell me it's a hoax. Well, you're right. There's no electricity in the building. Damn you, Jeremy Collins. There's no electricity in a building. So the <laughs> cops went in and looked around and they they got up there and they found there's two four by fours with Christmas tree lights wrapped around them and a little generator that somebody had brought in there. And that's how it was running. But for a while, people really did think that it was an apparition of a Christmas tree. We have to make sure that we get those pictures and post them online for Twisted Philly listeners and PWLT listeners. I'm sure everybody's going to want to see that. I want to see it right now. Okay, but I'll send you the pictures of it. But Okay, it's, you have to. It's, it was wild looking. I mean, it is so damn creepy. And it's also an expensive hoax because if you're taking a generator up there and leaving it, those things aren't cheap. Somebody was dedicated to pulling off that hoax. Yeah, they were committed. Not they were to really mention committed. they had to get up to the 15th or 17th or whatever floor it was in the middle of that hospital. It's not on the edge. It's not like they walked in and walked up a flight of stairs. They had to put in some time to get up there. So whoever it is, I, I got to kind of tip the hat to them a little bit. They put in some work <laughs> for that one. I wouldn't have gone in that damn place in the daylight, much less at night. That's a great story. You totally got me with that tree. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you totally got me with the tree. I'm like, it's a ghost tree. <laughs> Before I share my tale of a haunted hospital in Pennsylvania, we're going to take a quick break. So I can tell you about some podcasts that I really enjoy, and I think you might too. And I'd like to tell you about two podcast networks that I've recently been lucky enough to be invited to join. These networks have a great mix of shows, and I can't wait to tell you a little more about both of them. We'll be back with the rest of the episode in just about two minutes. This is Brianna and Kelly from Murder Dictionary Podcast. We go from A to Z, exploring different topics or motives each week. We've covered axe murder, killer kids, necrophilia, and occult murders. Murder Dictionary gives tons of facts and details, balanced out with humor. If you want a true crime and chill, or test your trivia knowledge with our serial killer games, or if you like lesser-known cases you may not have heard before, check out Murder Dictionary Podcast. In the shadowed recesses of our world, monsters lurk. Despite our reluctance to find them, an unlucky few cross paths. It's these experiences that we explore at Monsters Among Us podcast. My name is Derek Hayes. Each week I explore calls from around the world detailing chilling encounters with mystery beasts, ghosts, UFOs, and a plethora of other strange happenings. You can find Monsters Among Us podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and most other podcatchers. This podcast is part of the Dark Myths Collective. Visit darkmyths.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits.
I also have a story of a haunted hospital. Like our bar stories, mine is not as old as yours, but it's incredibly disturbing. I'm going to start. And you're older than me, so that makes up for it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to get you. Well, with age comes wisdom, so there you go. Oh, touche. But I'm going to start a little bit later than when this place actually opened. On August 8th, 1972, there was a feature story run in a Montgomery County, Pennsylvania newspaper, which is the county where I live, with a headline that read, Penhurst, the shame of Pennsylvania. So I'm going to talk about Penhurst Hospital. It's also been called Penhurst Institution and Penhurst Asylum. It was a state-funded school and hospital that opened in 1908, but calling it a school or hospital doesn't really paint the picture of what it was. It, it really was a city in and of itself. It operated off the grid because it, it had its own grid. And so it sits in a town called Spring City. It's about 45 minutes west of Philadelphia. It's only about 15 minutes or so from where I live today. The institution provided everything necessary to run all of the buildings. So Penhurst had its own post office. They had an independent police force. Yeah. They maintained their own power plant for electricity, so they weren't even on the public electricity grid. They grew their own food. They had a barber shop, for God's sake. They had a general store. They had their own fire staff. All of that, you know, self-sustaining. Why are you laughing? Because they probably should have their own fire staff with the number of fires that we've had in this episode. I know, right? (laughs) In some ways, this really self-sustaining model sounds very green. It sounds almost modern, you could say, considering how people try to live today, minimizing everybody's carbon footprint. But this off-the-grid opportunity that they had by being self-sustaining likely contributed to their ability to hide all of the problems from society. When Pennhurst opened its doors, it was called the Eastern State Institution for the Feeble-Minded and the Epileptic. That's such a politically correct name. Right. It's it's really appalling. Feeble-Minded. Remember, this is 1908, so it was an institution for mentally and physically disabled individuals whose families were unable to care for them, and it was built based on a model of segregation, which really was like most asylums at that time. Get these folks out of mainstream society where they can't hurt anyone and they can't make people uncomfortable. People with physical and mental disabilities were considered unfit for citizenship by an organization called the Commission for the Feeble-Minded. Like, there was a fucking commission for people that were deemed feeble-minded. And commission for the feeble-minded. I, I, I shit you not. This organization was founded in 1913, about five years after Pennhurst opened, and the term feeble-minded at that time meant people that had severe mental handicaps, they had learning disabilities, It could have even been people who today we would consider perhaps autistic. But in the early 1900s, there was no consciousness of how these people really could be supported to live more fulfilling, productive lives. 
they were treated as outcasts and ostracized. And, you know, the good people of society wanted to get these folks out of their purview so that they didn't have to be subjected to looking at or living near somebody who might, you know, make them question how good life really was. I mean, they, they, they were treated horribly, horribly. I want to say real quick, just for the listeners who don't know me, because I'm sure there are a lot. You have a, a huge listener base, and I'm not laughing at anybody's disabilities. Or when I laugh at feeble-minded, I'm not laughing at these people. I'm laughing at the absurdity of using a term like that to describe people. I mean, it just seems so insane to me. And on a personal note, I have a child who is on the autistic spectrum. You know that, Dina, but I wanted to put that out there for your listeners so that they don't listen to this episode and go, what a fucking asshole. I don't think anybody would think that about you. And I really appreciate your transparency and your vulnerability talking about your son. Um, I think the Twisted Philly listeners know the same thing about me. They'll hear me laugh at something that is really unpleasant and inappropriate. And I'm not laughing because... I think it's funny. I'm laughing because I think it's fucked up. I think our society today, just as much as it was 100 years ago, is fucked up because we still don't have the right solutions for people that have mental health issues. It's still difficult for so many people to get the right treatment, get the right support, to find the help that they need. So yeah, I laugh when I say feeble-minded too because I think how fucked up were these people that looked at someone who was a little bit different than them and thought that they should be shuttered off to an institution? Oh, and it happens still to this day. Problem in the early 1900s was, God forbid, the people that were existing as a genteel Victorian era in the early 1900s couldn't possibly have their perspective of what society looked like be subjected to persons who were less fortunate than themselves. Like you said, the quote-unquote good people of society. Right. And it's not all that different today, which is what enrages me when I'm on my show and when I live my life every day. So when Pennhurst opened, it was able to accommodate about 500 patients and pretty much immediately it became overcrowded. So very similar to what you were talking about with Charity Hospital. Some of the factors that contributed to overcrowding at Pennhurst was the state forced them to accommodate immigrants who had no place to live upon entering the country when they entered through Philadelphia. It forced them to accommodate criminals because of prison overcrowding. And they were also forced to take in orphans who had no home. So now you're taking folks who really have no need for, for mental assistance or no physical disabilities who really need, you know, compassionate care. And you're housing them in an asylum because let's be frank, Penhurst was a fucking asylum. And anytime and so, asylum is in the name, that's not a good thing. Not to mention you just said criminals and children in the same yes. place. Criminals, orphans, immigrants. You're taking people who are coming to this country trying to create a better life for themselves and saying, well, we don't have room for you here, so we're going to ship you off you know, about, about, I mean, at that point, it was probably two hours from Philadelphia, right? When you think about the transportation means in the early 1900s, we're going to ship you off here. Here's a place where you can get started, but we're also going to be housing you with criminals. And it doesn't necessarily mean they were murderers. You know, it could have been people who were stealing bread for their family. 
could be any any level of criminal activity. But yes, you were putting children with criminals. So eventually what happened was they were placed in low-functioning or high-functioning wards. And higher-functioning would be people that were there without the need for medical care. Low-functioning would be people that were there who needed significant medical care. When people that were living in the high-functioning wards weren't behaving themselves, according to the staff at Penhurst, they were punished by putting them in the low-functioning wards. So now you could have children being in the same room as somebody who was criminally insane. That's always a good mix. It was terrifying. Penhurst expanded to accommodate more than the initial capacity of 500. So by 1960, so this is about a little over 50 years after they opened, there were 2,800 people living at the Penhurst compound, and it was about 1,000 more than the facility could accommodate. There weren't enough beds. There were nowhere near enough staff. In the late 60s, there was a young reporter who worked for our local NBC10 affiliate. Now, I'm not going to get too deep into this because I'm, I'm probably going to do a, a bigger episode about Penhurst around Halloween. His name was Bill Baldini, and he went out to Penhurst and took a camera crew with him and filmed what became a five-part series about the conditions at this institution. Is this one and, of those places where people are not only sleeping in their beds, but also maybe have beds in the hallways and this kind of thing? They're tied to their beds. What he and his camera crew saw, um, rough. this gentleman says, haunts him 50 years later, even today. There were children tied to their beds. There were adults tied to what looked like adult-sized cribs. There were people lying naked on the floor, huddled in balls in the corners, and that doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. Oh, of I the can imagine all the other... wonderful substances they were laying in. I mean, it was decades of abuse. And that was in 1968, and it was 20 more years before this place was shut down. It didn't get shut down until 1987. And there's there's so much more history and and legal machinations about about how Penhurst was taken down. But I want to, we're talking about ghosts, so I want to make sure I include that aspect of this. But when it was shut down, In 1987, it was abandoned. It was left to the elements. And so much of what you talked about, Charity Hospital, it's so similar to Penhurst because there are rooms with a wheelchair sitting in it. Just such a solitary, stark reminder of the disabled and the infirm residents at Penhurst who did not have the care that they needed. There are rusted old bed frames. There are cribs that are large enough to hold an adult, and you can still see the straps and the restraints attached to the bars of the cribs. The walls are crumbling. The paint is peeling. The inside of the structure is terrifying, and the outside was left to the elements, which creates an even more ghastly appearance. Twenty years after Penhurst closed, so roughly around 2007, it was purchased by a local businessman. And that's when Penhurst, the haunted Halloween asylum, began. I will not visit Penhurst when it's in season. And by in season, I mean people jumping out at you in costumes, trying to scare you, 
you know, because I don't need a mask wearing, knife wielding, mad scientist to create a sense of horror for me. Penhurst is a horror in and of itself. I truly believe in the hauntings that go on at Penhurst. So there is a staff of caretakers, even though there's no way that any of the buildings on the property can really be brought back to any semblance of, uh, you know, what they looked like perhaps when they opened. The caretakers report there are countless souls haunting the entire complex. There are so many people who suffered neglect and abuse for decades. These folks are typically caring for the grounds and and trying to maintain the buildings as best they can to keep it safe for the Halloween events and for the paranormal investigations. Doors slam in rooms where no one is inside the room. There are footsteps heard echoing in empty hallways in every building throughout the entire compound. And I'll, I'll share pictures and links online so people can see how large. I mean, it really does look like its own little village. But I think it's, you know, the steps of the dead searching for some sort of comfort that they never received in life. And some of these spirits are angry. There are stories of the sounds of retching and vomiting echoing from so many of the rooms and echoing in the hallways and there's nobody there this sounds like the kind of place on one hand i really want to go and check out and on the other hand i know that it would not be a good experience for me well some of the saddest stories of penhurst are the hauntings of children there are a number of stories especially one little girl in particular who roams the abandoned buildings as if she's waiting for her family to come find her and rescue her from this eternal prison. And just like the days when Penhurst was a self-sustaining community, it even has its own paranormal investigation team, and they are called the Penhurst Paranormal Association. They're behind the tourist events where... Tourists can participate in paranormal investigations at Penhurst, and a couple times a year, Penhurst opens its doors for those exact type of events. There's also another group besides PPS, a group out of New Jersey called the Shore Paranormal Research Society. They've done a number of investigations in many of the buildings at Penhurst more than once, and they claim that they have captured visual and audible presence of apparitions. One building on the grounds is called the Quaker Building where they've captured doors moving without being pushed. There's no one in the room. They claim they've captured the image of that little girl who's been seen wandering a couple of the abandoned buildings. Sometimes they see her leaning over with long hair hanging around her face. Then there's something that they call shadow people that have been seen in multiple buildings around the Penhurst campus. And so these are shadows that are cast without a a physical person to cast a shadow. And they appear and they disappear at will. There are so many more reports from these two and other paranormal investigative teams with claims of actual EVP proof of the hauntings, plus just people that visit Penhurst during the paranormal investigations or even when the asylum is turned into a kitschy haunted house for Halloween. I really struggle with the haunted house aspect of Penhurst. I'm not a big fan of the scary mask haunted houses. I don't go to Eastern State Penitentiary when they have terror behind the walls, which is a haunted house. I will go there and tour the prison 
on days when you can tour it, but I don't want to be there when it's a haunted house. I really struggle with Penhurst in particular, you know, thinking about ghouls and goblins jumping out from behind dark corners when I believe the spirits of so many of the people that lived there still linger. And these were people that suffered. I really and, don't like the shadow people story. That strikes a, a really bad chord with me. You know what that reminds me of? And I, I'm pretty sure we've talked about this. I'm, I remember you saying you've read it too. Odd Thomas oh, by yeah. Dean Koontz. That's a great that's, series of books. That's what I think of when I read about the shadow people that these investigative teams claim they see out at Penhurst. It makes me think of the, God, what are they called in Odd Thomas? It begins with a B. Oh, I can't remember. I know. I can't remember either. Damn it. I'll have to figure it out. I want to say it's not Boondock, but it's something like that. But I just, I feel like Penhurst in particular, you know, not to say that people didn't suffer at Eastern State Penitentiary, but that was a prison. This was supposed to be a hospital, a state hospital, a hospital for people with, with mental disabilities. And, you know, that's one of the other reasons why I want to do a much bigger episode about this, because I really want to get into so much more about what happened in the evolution of state hospitals in Pennsylvania, their legacy in our state, really what led to this place finally being closed and why it took 20 years after that expose in 1968 to get it shut down. Um, I suspect but, it's because the, the people in charge just don't care. You would be right. On a lighter note, and it's Bodox. Bodox, that's it, the Bodox. That's what the shadow people remind me of. When I read about the shadow people at Penhurst, it makes me think of the Bodox from Odd Thomas. Such a good series of books. It is a great series of books. So that is my haunted hospital story. Well, I'll say it again. I may have you beat on the age of the places that I talked about, but you have me beat by far on the quality of story that you told because yours <laughs> sounded so much better than mine. So much more detail and word choice. You're just a better storyteller than I am. Stop it. Thank it's you very true. much. And you can add that to the uh, to the poll and you'll see that the listeners agree. I'm not really doing a poll. I did that just to give you a little bit of a rib. Yeah, I think you have to have a poll now. I'm not doing a poll and I appreciate your comments, but I love your storytelling too. And I had so much fun when you interviewed me on PWLT and, you know, when we were just kind of lighthearted talking about, hey, you should come on Twisted Philly and we can tell ghost stories together. And I, I've really wanted to do this for a long time. So I'm glad that we were finally able to make the time to record together. And I like that we both had similar stories between haunted bars and haunted hospitals and a bunch of fires burning shit down. What the hell? Yeah, that <laughs> Charters area is uh, not, a, not a good spot to be in during that six-year period. But I agree. I had a ton of fun. I love the show. I listened to every episode. I appreciate you having me on. It's a it's an honor and a privilege. Well, I listen to every episode of your show, too, and I would love it if you would take a little bit of time and tell the Twisted Philly listeners, if they don't know about your show, what is it? Where can they find you? Where can they tune in? I'm sure most of them don't know about it, but it's Podcasts We Listen To is the name of it. And thank you for giving me the chance to talk about it. It's me interviewing a host of a different podcast each week. So it gives people a chance to kind of get to hear a little bit of the behind the scenes, get to know the hosts a little bit, hear about shows that maybe they haven't heard about before. 
A lot of them are indie shows. They're not the ones with a corporation behind them like, say, Serial and This American Life. Not that those are bad shows. These are just smaller than that. Um, As to where they can find me, uh, it's available on iTunes and pretty much any podcast app. As far as I know, um, if it's not, maybe shoot me a message and I'll try to figure that out. And where can people find you on Facebook and Twitter? Well, Facebook is easy. It's the podcast we listen to Facebook group. And I think we're closing in on 14,000 members now. Whoa, congratulations. Thank you. And that membership includes you and a number of other yeah. wonderful podcast hosts and a boatload of listeners. But they can also find us on Twitter at PWLT Podcast. And they can email us if they want at uh, pwltpodcast at gmail.com. Well, Jeremy, I can't thank you enough for coming on Twisted Philly and telling some spooky stories with me. I hope you'll come on the show again sometime. Well, thank you for having me. You know I'll come on the show anytime you want. All you have to do is ask because I love talking to you. I love the show. Thank you for having me on. You are very welcome. I had so much fun recording with Jeremy. I love telling ghost stories. And damn, if he didn't get me with that story of a ghost Christmas tree, I kind of hate him a little bit right now. He's a stinker. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll check out Jeremy's show, Podcast We Listen To. That's it from me. Ciao for now, Twisters.